0: Child and Youth Care, episode number 163 of Wolfgang National. This week we're continuing recordings made at the 22nd South African National Association of Child and Youth Care and 4th CYCNet World Conference, which took place in Durban, South Africa in June of 2019. Today's presentation is with six different people, each of whom will introduce themselves in due course, called Developing Youth Leadership with and through Izabindi Safe Parks. For those of you who are not familiar with Izabindi, I encourage you to listen to the conversation I had with Zenny Tumbedo in October of 2018 in which Zeni explains the Izabindi model in detail. Very briefly, the Izabindi model is a South African-created program which identifies, recruits, hires, and trains local people to become child and youth care practitioners in their home communities. It has been incredibly successful by many measures, although it must be said not without challenges and some critics. Isabindi Safe Parks consists of programming created and delivered in local parks throughout the entire country. Today's presentation is a discussion of one program which makes videos with young people in some of those parks. I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Okay, so um, thank you very much for that, for that introduction. Uh, my name is Paul, I'm the, um, I'm, I work at the University of Leeds. And for the last few years, I've been working with the fantastic Bishop Simeon Trust and the equally fantastic One Child, um, One One Child One Home, One Family, One Child One Family, um, and we've been looking, we've been working with young people across a range of safe parks in Eco Haleli, looking at how arts practices could help support leadership development, and that's what we're going to talk to you a little bit about today. So the talk is structured into there we go. So it's in three parts. Um, the first part is by me, this is going to be really quick, and this is a bit of a background of how we got to this point. Then we're going to go into Lou, who's going to talk to us about some of the research findings that's emerged from this project. And then we're going to get into the really interesting piece, which is going to be presented by our colleagues from One Child, One Family, who are going to talk about what this programme looks like in practice and what the potential policy implications of this project might be. Okay? Right. So, so how have we got here? So, as as we said, for the last few years, I've been running this project called Changing the Story. Changing the Story is a project that looks at how arts organisations around the world can support young people to engage with and shape civil society. So, not necessarily just arts organisations, but organisations that are interested in using arts-based methodologies and participatory methodologies for development purposes. For me, the starting point for this was, was um, talking to this guy. This guy is Oggy Tomek, who's a big friend of One Child, One Family globally. He's done a lot of work with Hope and Homes for Children in the UK. Um, Oggy doesn't look like that anymore. Oggy looks a bit more like me. He's a little bit bigger than he, than, than, than he was then. But Oggy's very clear. He grew up in post-war Sarajevo, and talks a lot about how he's now an award-winning filmmaker. He's a very well-known filmmaker in the UK. And, um, He's very clear, he said being trusted with a camera in a participatory arts project at the end of the war changed everything for him. It gave him confidence, it set him on the journey that he's now got to in his life. And this is a really common thing that you hear a lot. right? You hear a lot about how the power of art, particularly in post-conflict settings, and there's a whole load of literature talking about the power of art, but actually when you drill down, there's a couple of things that are interesting. There's very little evidence for the Value of it. We know it works, but it's not, t- it doesn't tend to be evidenced. The, um, the evidence is that is there it tends to be quite invisible. Yeah? It doesn't tend to get published in the places that, you know, the web of science and all those kinds of places. It tends to get published via what we call grey literature. There's an awful lot of stuff out there. The people doing it are more focused on delivering the services to their frontline end users rather than reflecting on practice, so it's difficult to actually share learning because people are doing the jobs that they need to do to serve the vulnerable children that they're working with and also quite often, particularly for small organisations, they're they're hustling for the next tranche of funding. So what our project was about was about trying to help people network globally, to try to share practice and try to kind of get an evidence base to evidence the value of this stuff. So this is what we're doing in Changing the Story. We're looking to evaluate present and inform future practice of civil society organisations working with young people in post-conflict settings in order to build strong institutions that can support communities to deliver sustained social justice. And we're currently working in 12 countries globally. But it all started in South Africa, for me. Yeah. So the first organisation that I worked with was the Bishop Simeon Trust. And we've been working now for several years using a range of arts practices. My thing is film, so some of you were here before, or... In the bit, while we're waiting for the session to start, we'll see some of the films that we've been making with young people um, over the last couple of years. Um, so film is a very important tool. So, and, and it's kind of the main thing that I, that I do as my day job, looking at how we can use participatory filmmaking to support um, youth empowerment, to support child-led advocacy, so that young people can make decisions for themselves and um, organise their own development pathway. So that's what we've been doing, we're doing it all over. World at the moment right so this is what we've been doing we've been working recently with uh bishop stevia trust uh and one child one family supporting them to develop to to deliver and hopefully enhance the national safe park standards and particularly focused on the youth leadership now as lots of people in the room will know better than me it said it talks a lot about the youth, le- youth leadership and the need for a youth committee in the standards but there's very little detail of what that potentially could do and that's really what we've been looking at we've been looking at how can we use the fact that you need to have a youth committee in order to get to, to meet the standards and thus to get statutory funding for safe parks how can we use that to provide a a leadership program that can do a whole lot more than just tick a box saying we've got a youth Okay. Um, so that's what we've been doing. But within that, what's been really interesting in the work that Lou and I have been doing together as well, is what, what we're really interested in the way through this, we've been trying to change the direction of uh, the global development conversation. No, still, in this, year, in this age of the Sustainable Development Goals, which are supposed to be global goals, to which all countries are held accountable, certainly in the UK, the discussion still remains about a conversation that goes in one direction. Namely, it's about the Global North doing development to the Global South. And in our project, what we're trying to do is change that. We're trying to look at have a, having a genuinely a genuine two-way conversation where we take the best learning wherever it is in the world and share that practice. And Lou's going to talk a little bit more about that. And then within that, thinking about the best ways to support youth voice. And that's my bit over. Thank you very much. <laughs> so hi, I'm Lou
2: Harvey I'm from the University of Leeds. And as Paul said, my role on the project is to Uh, evaluate the educational value of this work by theorising the relationship between voice development and learning in the activities that we've been doing. Um, So I'm going to start by just talking briefly about what's often meant by voice in post-conflict education and then I'm going to use a couple of examples from our data to show you how our thinking about voice has developed over the course of the project. Um, So like many fields of education uh, in the global north and the west Post conflict education and peace education, it's mainly a modernist field. It has this agenda of autonomy and democracy um, and so called progress, uh, which is often based around this idea of the nation state. Um, so, in this perspective, voice is something unique. It's based on a human subject who knows who she is, says what she means, means what she says, and can kind of articulate voice quite unproblematically. Um, And you often hear researchers as well state their commitment to, for example, letting voices speak for themselves, um, or giving voice, or making voices heard. Um, So there's this assumption that they can uncover what someone really means, or kind of get to the real story behind something. Um, But this field is critical peace education. It's recently been criticized for being based on a kind of European enlightenment legacy um, of rationality, individuality, direct communication and analytic thinking and the focus on voice as representing the meaning behind something really privileges mind-centric ways of knowing where the mind is thought of as being superior to the body uh, and to the rest of the world and it's also often based on a learning culture that's shaped by the global north and west so it advantages students with a kind of verbal orientation to learning so anyway uh, to get to the data Um, Last year I went to a safe park, and the younger children there would um, cluster around where I was sitting, writing my field notes, and they'd take sheets from my big uh, notepad that I was using, and they'd be doing drawing and writing, and particularly um, collaging. They really loved collaging, and these were some of the things that they were making. Um, They had these magazines, kind of celebrity magazines. They had things like supermarket promotional leaflets, just little bits of literature hanging around. Um, And um, so they just made these collages, they just stuck pictures onto the paper and they'd come running up to me really proud of what they'd made and they'd want me to take pictures of them. Um, And this started with I think two or three younger girls and then more kids wanted to join in as they saw that everybody was having a good time and I was taking pictures. Um, And then this boy here didn't even make this collage, he wasn't really involved in the activity at all, but he saw what we were doing and he wanted a picture of himself with the collage. So the the, the question for me then with this data was, well, how do I make sense of it? You know, what's it saying? What does it mean? Um, What does it represent? I don't know um, and I can't ask them. So how do I understand voice here in this situation? And so what I did was I looked at all the actors in this scenario. So there were the children, there was me, um, the paper, The glue, the scissors, the bits of magazines and stuff that they were cutting up, the desk, the space that we were in, which was this shipping container that was used as their sort of classroom space. Um, And I found it really helpful to think of all these things as having what Jane Bennett calls thing power. And this is a way of thinking about non-human things as agents which have their own kind of force. And voice, I think, emerged from the kind of the combination or the confederation of all these things together. So the desire for the collaging started initially with this small group of young girls. But then it it was eventful, it kind of radiated outwards and eventually kids who weren't even doing it wanted to kind of get in on the power of it and and have their picture taken. So I think these things, they didn't signify anything. They didn't have meaning behind them, but they mattered. They were part of the production of Voice of these children and they were a really important part of their engagements with me Um, and with the world around them, and so I had to listen to them, somehow. So here, I was thinking of voice not as a kind of innate attribute of individual human beings, but rather as something distributed across human and non-human actors. And I think these collages are utterances which are, you can't separate them from the conditions in which they've been produced. There's no hidden meaning behind these things, they don't represent anything except themselves. So I think that this takes us to a place where we can understand voice as fundamentally collective and collectively produced in a complex network of human and non-human agents that exceeds the traditional notion of the individual. So, so far so good. i I'd found, I'd found a way of thinking about voice in, in this context that I was finding quite complex. But then there were also activities like this Can I have the short extract of the video, please? So I just talked about voice as distributed across this complex network that exceeds the individual. But here, in this activity, there is clearly an individual voice uh, coming from a particular person. And then in the call and response structure of the song, that one voice is always in relationship with the other group of voices. So they're all clapping and dancing together while the singer stands, slightly to the side or slightly in front of them so you know they're visibly individual but also visibly part of the group. Um, now th- this, this was a, a love song that they were singing, a kind of popular song and again you know like the collages there's no meaning behind this in terms of how we might traditionally think of voice but we can look at it in terms of what's being produced. So the unique voice that was coming from this girl, this singer, it's not accounted for in this more distributed understanding of voice from the collages, because there we were trying to move away from the concept of individual voice. But we can think of individual voice differently. I can't get to my next slide. Oops. There we go. so we can think of it differently, not as, uh, not as signification or meaning, but rather as just a sound which comes from the body. Um, so the philosopher Adriana Cavarero she's pointed out that in Western philosophy, there's traditionally been a separation between voice as a signifier carrying meaning, and voice as a material acoustic event. And when we become aware of this separation, it becomes possible to think of individual voice differently as an utterance rather than a signifier that carries, so something that's made, rather than something that carries meaning. So I think the analysis of the collages showed that voice is produced collectively, but I think the singing shows how it's uttered individually. And this individual isn't the kind of Western humanist enlightenment subject who's separate from their world, but they're an embodied human being who's part of this collective in which voice is produced. So, voice is uttered through individual bodies and produced collectively with other human and non-human actors. So, it's always this relationship between the individual and the collective. And this, um, this brings me to my conclusion. So, in understanding voice in this way as individually uttered and collectively produced, I think that we can see how these young people are undergoing a process of individuation from and within their communities. So they're always negotiating their roles as individuals with their roles as community members at the same time. And this process enables the integration of collective social demands and individual needs, which is fundamental to individuation as a psychically healthy and relational understanding of themselves in the world. And we're linking this idea to the concept of Ubuntu to show how South African approaches can be used to develop a community-focused and collective understanding of post-conflict education. Um, this is and it's an approach which challenges these kind of Western and Northern ideas, which are based on the rational, the cognitive, representational, the individualistic assumptions about voice. And in doing this, I think we're fundamentally challenging, as Paul said. prevailing idea in development that you know it's a one-way street between the global north and the global south. We're actually showing how work in the global south is is informing global education theory as well Um, and I think that what we're doing is moving towards a a trans-rational peace education which accounts for the collective and the emotional uh, and the embodied and the aesthetic dimensions of learning as well as the rational and the cognitive and the analytic which is already there in global education theory. Thank you. So I'm going (laughs) to hand over to our partners now that we've been putting this into practice on the ground. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh, Good afternoon. My name is Pip Hooks Apiri and I'm part of the community engagement team that has been working with uh, the community-based organisations in terms of translating the approach and incorporating it within the organizational activities. Uh, What has been key for us is that within working with the organizations, we have focused in developing them in two perspectives. One has been from an organizational point of view in order to make sure that the organization is uh, compliant uh, with the national standards, but as well as uh, assessing an approach that the Safe Park model already uses and we facilitate that by actually measuring against the indicators and making sure that the CBOs that we're working with are also taking acknowledgement of the standards that are needed to make sure that these safe parks are sustainable. Important to that is that these safe parks come with a huge uh, potential for prevention and early intervention and the projection of voice within that has played a key role in actually bringing children forth and actually incorporating them within decisions that are focused to them and around them. Uh, Most importantly was giving them the opportunity not only to be part and parcel of it, but take initiative of creating and informing the creative process behind it, which my colleague that uh, deals with the Safe Park aspect will go more into. Uh, From my perspective, I then look deeply into making sure that the organization in itself is uh, looking forward in terms of developing developmental plans that see them much more than a response to HIV, but then a diversified program that can offer different services to the community from the Safe Park and the CBO. So imperative to that is linking community resources that are already around with the Safe Park to enhance the communication gaps that are already within our communities at this time because of accessibility or reliability. But if the conversation is started from a point of view that the children are actually starting the dialogue, it makes it easier for parents to understand the children's voice from their point of view. So Tato will come forth and give you a more in depth on how the voice is projected through the medium of, of arts approaches.
4: Thank you very much. Um, um, my name is Tadu. So basically, this is um, what I do, all these pictures, all these videos that are taken. So I come from a background of art and film and everything. So what I then do is, when I come into the project, I first teach them how to use cameras. So there's a lot that actually goes into the project more than film. We have grassroots comics. We also teach them how to do debates and everything, so that the content that they want to put in their films is actually much stronger than what they see. So it's, not, it's more than what's happening in their communities, but then also how they interpret it. So we tend to also grow their interpretation of everything that is happening. That you might come from a certain um, circumstance, but that circumstance is not necessarily who you are. And then afterwards, that when we create films. After we create films with them, they sit down, they analyze their films, their content, and everything. Which now, when we sit down, we try to analyze the content It would be very amusing to find that the young ones would write a very sad story, but have so much fun doing it. Mm -hmm. Then it becomes then a very shocking experience for us. And then now, after this was the first part of the program, where we said, tell your stories the way you want to tell your stories. Whatever content you want in your films, which the shocking part was that three out of the four films that we made from January to now June, Mm -hmm. three of them ended with suicide. So all the protagonists in the films killed themselves. And then now the responsibility now is actually changing the story to say, let's now remake the films and then now look at the problems that we've been facing, the problems that we put on our films and how do we then look at those problems and find other solutions to come and solve those problems. So it's been a very interesting journey and also with grassroots comics what they do is we find comics and it's just a four frame where they tell a story that is now later translated into these films. The debates are there to make their content stronger, to look at their communities and actually um, saying that start to question things. The idea is to get them to start questioning themselves, start questioning their communities and start questioning everything else that makes them who they are. And then, um, in the next cycle, hopefully, we'll have more happier endings in their stories. And then, with that said, I think, yeah, you can take over. (laughs)
5: Good Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, My name is Yvonne, and I am also part of the One Child, One Family team. I'm just going to share with you um, our plans thereafter with the children as well as one very important aspect. We talk about um, taking care of the children, talk about grooming the children, giving them <coughs> confidence, giving them a platform of voice, and we teach them responsibility. But there's one very important aspect in all of this, and the, it, the question is, what is our responsibility as the adults, as the caregivers? Mm-hmm. Uh, any takers? None. Wow. Safeguarding. Okay we have the responsibility to safeguard our children and we have to make sure that we do so in every single step of the way in this process. And with respect to this project, we have taken quite a few steps to ensure that we safeguard the children in all aspects. And one of them is ensuring that we have proper gatekeeping mechanisms in terms of um, strengthening the communities and, and communicating with the statutory gatekeepers that are in the community, for example, your social workers, the police, and and community members especially, because they're the ones that have direct contact with these children on a day-to-day basis. We also encourage and teach the children to be able to, be, to safeguard themselves and their peers to be your brother's keeper <coughs> in, in a way. That is very, very important. So they should be able to identify when there's a problem and when they're not safe and there's should know to go and report or where to get help at any given time, especially their caregivers, which are the child and youth care workers that are in the communities that we're working in. It's also important that we link this um, the safe paths that we're dealing with to child protection forums so that they are aware of what is going on and they are able to, notice the child when they come in with a challenge and be able to and be able and ready to support the child immediately for us that is very 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 crucial then the next thing that is also very important to us is what are the plans with these children at the safe parks? what do we want to do at the end of the day we've given them a platform of voice we've given them we've, we've taught them to have confidence and courage and all of that what do we do next and the first thing that we would love to do is link these children to the Children's Parliament. And you probably will ask why the Children's Parliament. But for us, that is a platform that is readily available to take them in. And there will be a point where their voice will be even heard at a more national level. So we are. that's our most immediate plan amongst a thousand other plants, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, with that said, I would like to thank you very much for your attendance. As well as, please do feel free to ask any
2: questions and feel free to contact us in the details that i have give Thank you very much.